Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight I intend to continue with my reflections first of all on the spiritual part of yoga, on the spirituality of yoga as main theme, as core of yoga, on spiritual realization, where does that go, and uh, then I intend to bring us to the methodology that we use in this school, the so-called methodology of Tantric Yoga, and what is specific to Agama, a school as a methodology. I always try to give this clarity in the beginning, like what are we doing here, especially from the essential standpoint. As I said, there exists other goals in yoga, such as healing through yoga, improving the quality of the daily life through yoga, working for paranormal achievements through yoga. And all of them are legitimate pursuits. However, they all gravitate around the central pillar which is the spirituality of yoga, because when yoga was conceived, it was conceived as a method of union. Yoga meaning actually union. So it's the union with the spiritual reality. It's the spiritual union. So although all the other concerns in yoga are legitimate and very useful, sometimes... I don't care about uh, spiritual accomplishment right now if my shoulder or my back hurt terribly. Then what I need today is something or somebody to take away my pain. That I have a spiritual realization or not, or how soon is that going to happen, or how, or it's like, you know what, first I have a terrible problem, a disease, something which disturbs me very much right now. That's why it's logical that yoga moves on so many levels, but uh, the spiritual part remains the core of it. And last uh, week, when I spoke about these things, I spoke a little bit about the essential concept of evolution, which is uh, mock-copied in the process of biological evolution, like uh, from reptiles and fishes, and then there appeared mammals and birds, or birds and mammals and all that. Uh, The same order of evolution exists in the ancient Hindu-Buddhistic texts, as about the evolution of the spirit, that the spirit goes through those biological uh, ranks, And so on. That's not important right now. I'm just simply saying that the very concept of evolution from which we started, it brings us important questions. Like, where do you stand on the path of evolution? I asked that already. I even uh, decided to quote for you a gift or a text, different texts, three different texts, Fragments, very, very short, two-liners from the Christian tradition where the apostles of Christ 
They talk about the so-called gifts of the Holy Spirit, that a person that is practically enlightened, a person that is a saint or something like this, is gifted by the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit dawns on you, which means you are not so much more a gorilla, if the Holy Spirit dawns on you, then you are not a baboon, you are at the other end of the scale. So these concepts are related, then what happens to you? What kind of person are you? And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are quoted as being. You Again, I'm going quickly through it. It's just important to give an idea that somebody has been thinking about some of these things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Generosity, gentleness, faithfulness, modesty, self-control, chastity, wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, fear of the Lord, fear of God, given as a quality, given here as a merit, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith gift and gift of healings and other such things being quoted in different parts of those texts. Therefore, it's obvious that everybody is interested in evolution, especially because it seems to be the law of nature that there is some process of learning, of perfecting, of evolution. And in this process of evolution, as I said last time, I'm just going, I just added uh, this parenthesis with the gifts of the spirit. In this process of evolution, therefore, there appears the idea that human beings can accelerate their evolution, take responsibility. According to the understanding of the great sages of the East, either you want or you don't want, you still are going to evolve. But some people evolve through pain, through mistakes, and some people evolve by just trying to observe and saying, oh, then I shouldn't do this, then I should do that. Like we may do murders, but then for each murder we have the karma of that murder, and the karma comes back to us. And we get when we get fed up of getting that karma back, then we think maybe that's a circular thing. You know, I do it, it comes back to me. I do it, it comes back to me. I do it, it comes, but then where is the gain in it? There's no gain in it. Therefore, I better find another solution. So the idea is that if your subconscious mind gets saturated even with a mistake, then you are not going to do that mistake anymore when it becomes too much. And I gave examples of people who are afraid to see blood because of previous life, violence, and other things like that. So, the point being that since evolution is compulsory, and we learn whatever we do, but then evolution means that the spirit is becoming more revealed. It is uh, analogous with the concept, a Gurdjieff is the first one who used it in spirituality, when he compared it with entropy. I don't know how many of you know enough physics, but entropy is a measure of the degree of disorder in the universe. And when entropy increases, 
things are getting more chaotic. For example, intelligent people can work hard to build a million blocks under the form of the pyramids of Egypt. Then the wind is coming, earthquakes are coming, rains are coming, the sunshine is coming, and in a billion years, there are no more pyramids, because they have been turned into dust, and the dust is blown from here to there. If nobody does anything, and you just look at the pyramids of Egypt, it takes just a matter of years before they turn into dust. Dust is chaos. No structure. No order. So, the pyramids are order. But naturally, they tend to go into dust. It never happens without the intervention of a human being that the dust will turn into pyramids. Not by itself. Not by nature. In nature, it never happens. In nature, things go from order to chaos. From high to low. For example, Jesus is the example of extraordinary order. 2,000 years later, almost nobody takes seriously the words of Jesus. It's chaos. In the first century, the Christians were so hot that they could go to death singing for Jesus. And they did. Tens of thousands of people were killed just because they said, we love Jesus. Today, if somebody will threaten you, you die. If you don't say that Jesus was an asshole... You'll say, come on, I will say, and then I'll repent, then I will apologize. Okay, Jesus is an asshole, okay, leave me alone. No, they didn't do that 19 centuries ago. They could have done it, but they didn't. No. So what I'm trying to say, in everything, there is a decadence. There is a gift of spirit which is non-entropy, which is order, like Buddha is coming, and then people start forgetting what Buddha said, declining. It's valid in every religion, it's valid in every spirituality, it's valid in everything in nature. This is called entropy. That entropy consumes, dissolves, eats, erodes everything, and then only by a miracle thing, like, okay, we have uh, Krishna coming and visiting the earth, or something like this, and then you get a new spike, And then it erodes in many, many centuries. And then another big one comes and again it erodes in many, many ways. You see it even in a smaller, in a smaller respect. Like for example, let's take the self-realization fellowship, the movement of Yogananda Paramahamsa and his famous story with Kriya Yoga. In 1950, they were very hot. Today, if you visit them, it's just buildings, lands, gardens, and a lot of beautiful memories about Paramahamsa Yogananda. How many people actually practice Kriya Yoga every day like crazy? The numbers have dwindled enormously. How many people are going to reach Samadhi by doing that? We don't hear anything from that direction. The Kriya schools of the world don't say, here is one more, one more has reached Nirvana. It's not happening, simply. You know. So, basically what I'm saying is, even with spiritual masters, you see that there comes a person that is specially talented spiritually, maybe not as big as Buddha, maybe not an avatar like Jesus, but come somebody like Shankaracharya, come somebody like Swami Shivananda, come somebody like Rumi, and in the beginning there is a big excitement, 
and then it slowly, slowly gets eroded by time. This is called entropy, that people tend to forget that we are tired, that we are worn out by daily worries. And then people say, ah, it's not like it was 30 years ago. 30 years ago, I would have done more or something. This is a phenomenon which is called entropy. And entropy basically says that it's difficult to get from a lower state to a higher state. Buddha has said that this is the, the road to virtue. He called the state of Buddha a state of virtue. He said the road to virtue is like a road which goes uphill. And it's difficult to go uphill because you sweat. You have to work to go uphill. And there is an easy road where you can go downhill. And most people roll down the hill. It's easy to just put a roller blades on your feet and just slide down. To go up, you have to sweat. So to become more spiritual, you have to go against the entropy. To, if you let go, you go down. And it, there is almost no station here. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. Jesus didn't say, there are also a couple of people who are neutral. They are neither with me nor with, there isn't. Jesus said, if you are not with me, you are against me. It's a seesaw. And nobody is in the middle of this seesaw. You are either with or against. Either you go up or if not, you go down. It's like people in economy today who say, if your business is not growing, it is already on its way down. It's as simple as that. So, Buddha has called it a road up. Jesus has called it the narrow path. There is a narrow path which leads to virtue, and there is a wide path, which means easy, which goes to perdition. So, when you want to go to virtue, to nirvana, it's a way to against entropy, which means you have to build, not to let things destroy. It's a conscious effort to go from chaos to order. And thus, the process of evolution, when it is done, in whichever way it is done, it means an improvement. But if you let me choose, maybe I don't choose improvement. It's easier to roll down the hill. And then nature has embedded in it, this nature in which we live, the universe, has embedded in it forces, energies, which produce evolution. In spite of your intervention. Just to give you a sort of a sweet analogy from the world of animals. The first esotericists in the 19th and 20th century who dealt with this issue that people have pets. Because in the old days people didn't really have pets. People were farmers and they had animals that served them. Like oxen, horses, dogs. But they were not pets in the house. When people have pets, some esotericists like Rudolf Steiner and others, they have said these animals become humanized by having a lot of contact with a human being. The more you humanize them, you give them a name, you look them in the eyes, you take a photo with them and upload it on the internet, then the animal becomes humanized. And there are many pets in the house that get very strange habits which are half-human. 
Like, I've seen images of cats going to the shower and taking a shower, while it's known that cats hate water, generally speaking. But there are cats which imitate their owners, and they take showers. They let the water pour in it, and the cat goes and starts washing under the water, like this. Which is like, what the heck is that? Esotericists have said, when an animal takes this path, it will evolve, you give it some evolution, it becomes humanized, and be then, very quickly, its animal body is not good enough for that spirit. The spirit has developed much faster than the animals do develop, because the animals develop very slowly. And that spirit has developed a hundred times faster through your intercession. Then what's happening is that as much as you love your pet, your pet is going to die. Because the spirit of that pet wants to be free of the animal body in which it is, so it can go in a body which is more evolved, and where the evolution can continue from that stage on. So sometimes if you humanize an animal too much, you kill it. Which in the big picture, it's a good thing, because it moves ahead in its evolution. But if we have ignorance about this, we don't understand the process. And therefore, in the animal world, and in the unconscious world, evolution is kind of automatic. But And when it is automatic, it sometimes requires an effort. Like, here you have Walter, our famous citizen Walter, who is evolved 50-50, and evolution has to push him further. And evolution means that Walter has to become full of patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, gentleness. But Walter, again, is any Walter here tonight? Somebody feels targeted. Okay, so Oscar, any Oscar here tonight? Okay, we switch to Oscar. So Oscar is not having generosity. Oscar is miserable and tight-handed. Oscar is selfish, and he's supposed to become less selfish. You all have family members, friends, people, and some of them, even as kind as, and politically correct as you try to be, some of the acquaintances, friends, family members that are around you, you when you think at them, you think that person is a bit of an irrecuperable idiot, or an uh, hopeless asshole, you know? You always, there are some people that you would label like, okay, who can make something good? Like, when you'll hear that Uncle Oscar has reached the kingdom of heaven, that will be the day, you know? It's like, I think everybody on planet Earth is going to reach the kingdom of heaven before Uncle Oscar, you know? Like, Uncle Oscar seems to be a lost cause because he's the most selfish, demented, asshole person that I know in my life. But Uncle Oscar is also part of the process of evolution. He has. He has to. He needs to learn something. There is a paper in the hands of an angel which says, Oscar, until he dies, we need to get him to, from point A to point B. So how does life do that? Life does that by kicking you in the ass. Hard. Like... You are an asshole, selfish, and so on. And then like Job in the Bible, like the famous parable of Job, you lose your family, you lose your children, you lose your wealth, you lose your health, you lose everything. 
and suddenly you are on your bum thinking, what did I do, you know? And you are contemplating suicide, and probably three times you do suicide, but then you suffer, and then the fourth time when this happens to you, it's like, okay, something must be really wrong in my life, you know? Unfortunately, life has a way of educating through pain, by beating people up until they learn the lesson. And therefore, unfortunately, evolution which is done unconsciously, how do you do to push a person uphill? Only in painful way, like people kick their feet and they plant their heels in the ground and they say, no, 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 it's okay, I am okay as I am. And Kali, who is not here right now, is laughing bitterly at your expectation that, yeah, sure, you don't need them. Kick in the ass, one meter forward, move. No, like life has no mercy from this standpoint. There is no mercy in which you say, oh, I think I've had enough evolution in this life. Can you just give me 50 years where I don't do any evolution? Then life says, what, you want to breathe my oxygen for nothing? You want the planet Earth to sustain you with food while you are just sitting and doing nothing? He who is not with me is against me. If you don't evolve, you go down. And therefore the planet, nature, Kali, whatever you want to call it, God, the Buddhas of the past, present and future, Shambhala, the masters of the lords of the karma, there are various names given to various entities and institutions which are dealing with this process. Unfortunately, they have no mercy. There are no excuse. Like, ah, I'm too tired in this lifetime. I will do more evolution in the next one. Shut up. You are just high maintenance and you are just spoiled. No, just get to work. There is no excuse for not evolving. Whatever your condition is, you are evolving. And it's a must. And it's not chosen by you. And that's why, remember that there is this problem, that evolution is, uh, like you can say, it's very easy to say, oh, you know what, I don't think I will let evolution push me anymore, because as Swami said, it's painful, but I think I'm going to do it, I'll take responsibility. From today on, evolution is my job. Yeah, but when you think more carefully about it, evolution means... Evolution means different things which might not be pleasant. Like, you are trying to become less violent. Somebody steps on your toes badly, and then you go like, oh, evolution, 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 evolution. Like, okay, in the name of evolution, I will kind of hold back, you know, because I don't want to be a baboon anymore. I want to be closer to Jesus or something like that. Therefore, In the name of evolution, I will refine myself. I will perfect myself. It's an effort. It's an effort. Whatever. You decide to practice Brahmacharya. It doesn't come naturally to practice Brahmacharya. You need to make an effort. You try to practice truthfulness. It doesn't come naturally to practice truthfulness. I read a statistic made by some... British and American universities where they discover that the people, the perfectionistic people who claim that they always speak the truth, they tell approximately automatic nine lies per day. Per day. Like even the people who think they are perfect in truthfulness, 
according to university research, they say an average of nine lies per day. The others, they say 59 lies per day. And then they admit, yeah, yeah, from time to time I lie to protect myself, to do this, to do that. But even the people who think they don't lie, unconsciously, they still say about nine lies per day. Therefore, to not say lies, it's a conscious effort. Because many of them, we tell them even without being aware that we do. So it's first of all an effort of presence. Like, did I just say a lie? Hey, hey, by, by the way, stop, 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 stop. The thing which I just told you 10 seconds ago, I just realized it's not entirely true. It's a bit of a lie into it, you know, and so on. But I have to catch myself. I have to be 24 hours present, present, like, you know. So it's an effort, always. It's an effort of improvement to do this. That's why evolution is like uphill. It's against entropy. It's against this laziness, which in India they call tamas. Tamas means that you are just like a couch potato. Just let me be. In the moment when you do this, you are rolling down the hill. That's the easy way. The difficult way is stand. Stand and evolution. And as long as you live, there is still evolution, evolution, evolution. Something to learn in that. And that's why... We said all these things to inspire you about this evolution, that deliberate evolution is equivalent to spirituality. That's when you stop being an animal. If you are saying, now, life will take care of it. Yes, life will take care of it. How will life make Uncle Oscar detached? Well, Oscar is greedy. He's a businessman. He built himself a house. He has a family. He has three kids, and then one day a fire comes and burns his house, and he goes bankrupt, and he has no insurance, and his wife dies in the fire, and his kids die of tuberculosis or something, and there Walter is no house, no money, no business, no family, no nothing. And then he starts asking himself, why why did I work like a slave for the last 30 years? Why did I work like a slave? Is this the meaning of life? No. There are people who are getting crazy, like that, and then they don't have a child. And then when they are 50 or something, they start thinking about adopting a child, because it serves no purpose. I worked and I worked and I worked and I have a piece of land and I have buildings and I have this, and to whom am I going to leave it? Then it makes you see immediately, my life was a shadow. Everything was an illusion. I just served the Fata Morgana, you know, I worked and worked and worked like there is a purpose in it. And now I'm about to die or close enough to die. And at least if I can leave it to my children, I'm saying, yeah, I worked, but I worked for my children. And my children are going to say that they work for their children. And their children, everybody passes it on. It's like chasing the horizon. It's like chasing the rainbow. You never catch it. It's always something which stays in the distance. And sometimes when life wants to be really mean to you, It just, boom, puts it right in your face. That everything which you've done until now is going to zero. It's gone into the dust. It serves nothing. You wanted to leave your house to your children. Now your children are dead. Some other relative will grab your house or something. What are you going to do? And then people suffer a lot. They go through a revolution. Some of them might lose their mind or become slightly crazy. 
because it's such a shock for your ego, because your ego has very clear plans. And all those plans, <laughs> God is laughing of your plans. Like what an idiot you are to make all those plans. No, The famous Greek proverb, how do you make God laugh? You just tell him about your plans. No, it's like, that's what's happening. You know, That's why people are scared by God. Because God is laughing in the face of your foolishness. Everything is foolishness. Everything is hollow and empty. And people keep building castles in the thin air. And then one day they are not. That's what Dalai Lama said. Life is like crossing a bridge. And he said, I wonder why some people insist of building themselves a house on the bridge. Like life is a bridge. None of you comes from here. A hundred years ago, you were not here. And a hundred years from now, you'll not be here. So obviously the beginning and the end is not here. There's just a limited, and then why pay so much importance of what's happening here? When nothing starts from here and nothing ends here. This is just a loophole. We live in a loophole somewhere. But that's not the beginning and not the end. It's not the foundation. No? So, therefore, when life wants to give you evolution, it's very painful. And thus... Evolution, the yogis, the spiritual beings, they simply chose and simply said, I know. Like Buddha, you know, I look at life, I can see only that people are getting old, sick, they die. Buddha maybe seems a bit pessimistic, but he was not. He was just a bit cynical in this way. He said, the essence of life is pain. There is pain. Stop trying to tell to yourself that there is no pain. Look around, there is pain. And therefore, Buddha started from this. Is it possible to go somewhere else than in this pain? Like the fact that there is pain, you just look around and see it everywhere. And thus, spiritual people like Buddha, they have looked around and they've said, it's all nothingness. It's all, you know, it's like, what are people struggling so hard for when in the end of the day nobody seems to get anything? How many times do you have to hurt your head against the wall to learn this simple truth? That, you know, people say, I've done this and I've done that and I've, okay, now cross your hands and die. No, like, who, who gives a fuck in a hundred years from now that you've done this and you've done that? There are a few people, the one who built the pyramid of Cheops and the one who built the Eiffel Tower and so on. Those people for a few hundred years, people will say, oh, there is a French engineer who built a big tower of 300 meters. But in three million years, even that guy won't be remembered for anything because the Eiffel Tower would have turned into rust and dust. And thus, in the end of the day, it's just a matter of time. Time is the most cruel revelation. Because it's just a matter of time before you realize, wait a second, this doesn't last, this doesn't last, this doesn't last. Nothing lasts. Even the planet Earth will not last forever. Even the sun will not last forever. Then, of course, some people say, well, you know, I can put up with this. I can get, I can have minor satisfactions. When you are like Buddha, you don't go for minor satisfactions. You just think big. And you say, you know, let's not pamper ourselves with some soothe ourselves, with some trinkets. No, but you can, yeah, there is death and old age and this, but meanwhile you can get a lot of great sex. 
Yeah, sure, you can get a lot of great sex, and it seems to postpone the death and the old age, so you say, well, I'm dying like everybody else, but at least I had a lot of great sex, meanwhile. No, that doesn't solve the problem. It just attenuates it. It just creates a little bit of, uh, you know, postponing the issue, and so it's not so scratching your eyeball so much. So, because of this, spiritual people have decided in their wisdom that it is important to do something for your spiritual evolution. And so many ways, so many paths, so many methods have appeared about this. I do not intend, I had a lecture once upon a time about spiritual realization, and I kept some ideas here, I'm not going to now start commenting for you, because that's very important. Um, theoretically, in this series of lectures here, one of my purposes is to kind of give you a bit of a lucidity, and to make you aware of the fact that you are going somewhere, you are evolving, and because you are evolving, you are going to end somewhere, in a very wonderful place in a very great place. And my task as being the teacher in this school is to make you interested in that target. If I can manage to convince you that that target is worthwhile, then tonight, tomorrow, you will practice more. You will be more motivated. Ultimately, that's the function in spirituality, to teach you first the motivation, not first the methods. I can teach you Udhyana Bandha, but then you will never do 108 Udhyana Bandhas per day. But if you are motivated for a great purpose, then you are going to say, you know what, next month 108 Udhyana Bandhas per day for this purpose. Then you do it. So the question is, if you are motivated, you can be motivated to have a good health. There's nothing wrong with that healing, through yoga. You can be motivated that your daily life should get better. Like in my life, this is not working, that is not working. Maybe I can make it work. Good. Then you will be ready to put your shoulders into it. It can be that you are motivated by some paranormal phenomenon. Oh, I heard that some people can see the auras, the color of the auras. I heard that approximately nine people out of ten who claim to do this, they are actually hysteric, sick in their head, or crooks, and they lie. And therefore, I would like to be one of those one people in ten who can actually see auras the real way. And I learned from Agama or some other place that if you work on your third eye and you do Raja Yoga and you do this and you do that, then you are going to have great results. And you know what? I am motivated enough. I'm motivated enough to give one hour and a half every day. My life is busy. I'm a professional. I do this. I do that. But I want very much to see people's auras. And if I can do that in two years of working on Ajna every day, one hour and a half, it's not a too big price to pay. In the same way, there are people in this school and in this world who are interested not in health, not in improvements of their life quality, not in paranormal abilities, but in yoga, in union. 
to reach this union with the cosmic consciousness, to become one, to come home, to you reunite with the ocean from where you have started. Ultimately, this is what I tell and we tell in our lectures on Ishvara Pranidana, aspiration. Illustrated by a wonderful quote and scene from the Tibetan movie Samsara, that this guy who meditates and meditates and then he goes back to the world and he does stupid things and again he reforms and so on. There is a question. There is a sutra, a Tibetan Buddhist sutra written on a rock and that question is fundamental, is how do you prevent a drop of water from ever drying up? The drop of water is you and I. No? And we are drying up. If you put a drop of water on a stone, in two hours it's not there anymore. If you put me on planet Earth, in a hundred years I'm not there anymore. Each and every one of us is like a drop of water thrown somewhere in the world, and we are just drying up. As we speak, we are drying up. It takes more than two hours. It may take a hundred years, but still, it's inevitable that we go there. So the question in everybody's mind is automatically, how do you stop a drop of water from ever drying up? And the answer, which appears only in the end of the movie, is you throw it back into the ocean. That's the only way to stop a drop of water from ever drying up. And that simply says, the only way to stop the pain of Buddha is nirvana, is to reunite with the ocean, is to go back home, is to be one with the one. And thus, spiritual people have that as a target. They don't say, oh, just to see auras, I would be capable to work one hour and a half every day. They say, to be one with the one, I would be able to work even eight hours every day. I would do anything it takes. Not everybody has this blessing. Not everybody is that motivated. And some people would say, you know what, I do have an interest in spirituality, but honestly, my life doesn't give me more than 30 minutes per day for that. That's still a motivation. And a person who does 30 minutes of something per day for their spiritual emancipation is infinitely superior to somebody who does nothing and just converts oxygen into carbon dioxide. Therefore, it's better, but it's not enough. Some people like Ramakrishna, they wouldn't have put up with 30 minutes. Some people like Ramakrishna were insane. And they said, nah, never a job, never nothing. Boom, full-on spirituality. Even if I have to slip under a bridge and to die of starvation, boom, spirituality, that's what I want. Not everybody is like that. And that's one of the things which I cannot give to you. Because you are who you are. You are what you are. You are where you are. And here, there is a whole variety of souls that are coming at different level of their personal evolution. And they are evaluating to see if Swami Vivekananda and Agama Yoga can actually provide for them what they are seeking for. Hey, I'm seeking for a way to accelerate my spiritual evolution. I heard about these people from Agama Yoga, that they are just a bunch of sexual maniacs. So I'm going there for three days, 
Because there might be a chance that actually that's a fake rumor, and actually they are doing some serious spiritual work, and then I could learn something and do something. So I'm going to see for myself. It's normal, of course. It's logical that people have doubts, they use their reason, they evaluate, and so on. But many people, when they evaluate, they want to evaluate this. Is this really working? Is something happening here? If I do this for the next three years, am I going to waste my time? Because then you have your internal question, yes, but am I willing to do two hours per day of something? Like if they teach me something here in Agama, will honestly, will I do it? Or I just learn it? I'm enthusiastic about it for about 10 days, and then I put it on a shelf in my house, and I completely forget about it for the next 10 years. Then it's like the Tibetans say, this is like a useless effort, it's like the lightning striking the water. When the lightning hits the water, the effect is zero. Nothing happens from the lightning striking the water. No? So in, we don't want the lightning to strike the water, right? We want that we get something and that we react to it. So everybody has an internal motivation. And that internal motivation has to be matched by the external requirements. So concerning spiritual realization, there are so many... Um, ideas about it, and I'm not going to insist, but this is very important to just have in mind, that evolution is not a process totally without end. Buddha says, I evolved for 10,000 lifetimes, and one day my crown chakra went open. He doesn't say that because Buddha doesn't speak about the chakras, but I put it in the language of Agama, in the jargon of Agama. One day my crown chakra opened up, and then bingo, I reached. I became a Buddha. So all the traditions of humanity, in Hinduism, with the different forms of yoga, in Buddhism, in Christianity, in all the other classical religions, Judaism and Islam, related with Christianity, the so-called three religions of the book, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And in many other spiritual traditions, there is always the thing that there is a graduation, that there is a high point, and if you reach that high point, life will never be the same. Something is going to change radically. Like for Buddha, there was something which happened until the 17th of April, or whatever date it was when he reached Nirvana, and then after the 17th of April things were very different. He was physically the same person, but spiritually, he was not the same person. Six months before that, he was tormented by his quest. Six months after that, he was an enlightened master that had a goal to spread the word, to give that knowledge to others, and to create the Buddhist tradition and all that. Therefore, I am not going to go into the details of it. When we do the metaphysical workshop, we speak the fact that Yogananda describes that there exist three forms of samadhi, three forms of enlightenment. So even this enlightenment is not as simple as that. When you go into the technical details, it's a whole story there. And uh, 
again, there are so many traditions that call it in so many ways, but um, I just would like from all this story, you know, in, in which I'm trying to tell you, hey, there is a graduation, there is a goal, and this goal is worthwhile. Um, I just would like to read very, very briefly some quote from the Shiva Sutras, a fundamental text of Kashmiri Shaivism, the first text of Kashmiri Shaivism revealed to a great yogi called Vasugupta in the 8th century. And I want to read it because, among others, in this Shiva Sutra, which, again, for the Kashmiri tradition is a very, very important text, something is mentioned about what means this state of yoga. And some of the things which I'm going to read here, you will not clearly understand because some Sanskrit words may be too complicated for you, especially if you have never been to a KS intro workshop, uh, then you don't know some things. But don't worry, there is a KS intro next month, so you can have it then. And on the other hand, I, it's not about the fact that I think you'll understand every word and every turn of phrase. It's more just to give you a flavor. It's more to give you a feeling like, how do the Kashmiri Shaivas talk about this destination. What is for them nirvana? Like we know that Buddha explained and sometimes it's inspiring and sometimes maybe not so inspiring. Just because uh, the definition of nirvana, you can read it, you just Google it on internet. Kashmiri Shaivism is a bit more rare and more esoteric and that's why I prefer to bring to you a more esoteric extreme vision, top extreme vision, just to see Maybe what I read now is scaring you off, or maybe what I'm reading now is turning you on. Maybe it leaves you where you are, because you actually don't understand much of it. At least then it triggers a curiosity that you can want to research a little bit more, because this Swami, he has read some very strange things, like what does it mean, this or that. Here is Kashmirian tradition speaking for a few sutras, just for you to see how they look upon, like, where do we go? Is it worth it to do three hours of yoga per day for this, which I'm reading now, to become one of those? Is it worth it? Or do you still want to watch soap operas in television? You know, it's like, ultimately, it's your choice. Maybe you can do three hours of yoga and watch soap operas, you know? Maybe you are with one foot in one boat when with the other in the other. It's up to you. There are a million cases. But let's hear tradition. The one who enjoys continually the fourth state through those three states, the fourth state is the Nirvikalpa Samadhi, is a lord of heroes. Lord of heroes is heroes are viras and Indra is the lord. So it's a virendra in Sanskrit, is a title like more than the heroes, more than the spiritual heroes. And it means to be master of your senses, master of the energies. His will is the divine energy Uma, the one perpetually virgin. So the will becomes one with the basic energy of Shiva. It's not a human will anymore. His body is the entire perceptible world. His body is the world. Like the universe. By compenetration with a pure principle, he obtains the energy of freedom. Apashu, Shakti, everybody is a Pashu, an imprisoned animal. Apashu, Shakti means not to be an animal anymore and to be free. So that's the famous Moksha or Mukti. 
His right discernment or vitarka is the knowledge of the supreme self. Like the ultimate discrimination is what is the self and what is not the self. That's discrimination taken to the last level. The beatitude or the bliss of this world is identical for him to the joy of samadhi. So whatever bliss is in this world is identical with samadhi. Orgasm, aesthetical pleasure, pleasure of the senses becomes samadhi. So you are able to turn the pleasure of the senses into mystic ecstasy, into samadhi. By compenetration with the divine energy or shakti, this perfect yogin can create at will the body, which means to create, to materialize, to create things which he wants. He can join the elements, separate the elements, and bring together everything, or unify everything. This is the definition which Patanjali, in another text, gives to the mastery over the five elements. To control everything. Controlling the elements, separating the elements. And you are being told in the first level in the lecture about music, that the exam for musicians in the 16th century tantric environment in India was that they had to play the raga of fire and turn on a candle without touching it. That's controlling the elements. If you can play music and light a candle just by playing the music, that it burst into flames like this, it means you control the fire element. That's a control over the element. So that's what's meant by this. By attaining this, there results a lot of... By attaining the pure knowledge, one reaches lordship over the wheel of energies. These are the ten Mahavidyas, like controlling any of the ten basic energies of the universe, all of them. By compenetration with the great lake, which is a metaphor for God, for the Supreme Consciousness, he obtains the efficient power of all the mantras. Whatever you've heard about a mantra anywhere... In that state, it becomes possible. And there are a few shlokas, a few verses left. The next one is just like crazy. It says, so after all, he becomes like Shiva. That's a very short verse which says everything. For him, the activity of the body is religious vow. Like normally people do religious vows. For Abhinava Gupta... Any activity of the body is religious vow, if he is Shiva. His conversation is recitation of mantras. His gift to the world is knowledge of the self. That's what the real gift which matters. The other things are collaterals. If everybody would have the knowledge of the self, would live in a totally, 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 totally different reality. He is shepherd of enslaved souls, like Shiva Pashupati. He is the shepherd of the souls, for he is the source of self-knowledge indeed, the knowledge of the self. Being established in the group of shaktis, the will of energies, he is indeed source of the self-knowledge. The creation of the universe itself is the unfoldment of his own power or shakti. And so are the preservation and resorption of the universe. But the one who is still full of delusion is still subjected to the power of... From uh, the Shiva Sutra, just a, a few sutras from there, and quickly without commentaries or explanations, are just meant exactly for this, to show that all the texts describe a sort of a threshold, 
an exalted condition, and above that line, the human condition is not human anymore. The human condition transcends, and it doesn't mean that everything stops at that time. Nobody says that, but it means it's like going to an entirely different uh, level of existence. So, I'm not going to insist too much on this. I'm preparing to move towards the next subject in this flow of ideas, which I want to give to you in the beginning of this season. Uh, what I try to say here is that the process of evolution is fundamental, and many people feel attraction towards this process of evolution, and many people feel that it is their task on earth to improve themselves, to become better human beings, to grow. It's true that some people are discouraged and they say, well, so what if I do, then eventually it's still worth nothing. That's not true. That's simply bad ideas in your head. It's the demonic forces who try to convince to you that doing what Ramakrishna did or becoming a couch potato in your house it's pre is the same. It's not the same. There is a huge difference. But of course, there are forces out there which try to discourage you and to say, no, no, don't even try. Don't even try because it's not worth it. It's not, no. Where exactly you are in this game and this balance of forces, only your heart knows where you stand in all this. Your heart makes the choices and your intuition, therefore, decides how motivated you are for one thing or another. And thus, some human beings, and it's not black and white, it's some more and some even more and some very, very much, they are motivated <coughs> to do something immaterial for their evolution. Like, who is going to measure it? Who is going to evaluate it? When? How do you know if you pass the test, if there is a test or a standard line Will you be truly satisfied in the end uh, when you will die and you'll be on your deathbed? You'll think and you'll say, my goodness, I have done something amazing in this life. Or you will, on the contrary, say, I've done something, but I think I've done nothing. I don't know. It means nothing. Or, you know, where, where does this go? How concrete is all this process of evolution and all that? So these are legitimate questions. And human beings have been interested in this. Sometimes the percentage of those who really, really want to do something strong is a bit small. Krishna in Bhagavad Gita says, Oh, Arjuna, out of a thousand people, one is ready to do something for their spiritual improvement. One person in a thousand means 0.1% of the population. That's very, very little. Even the sexual minorities are more than 0.1% of the society. It's like it's to be a spiritual, an active spiritual seeker, it's very, very rare. Krishna does not, because you say, but aren't 80% of the people in your country Christian? They are, but Krishna doesn't consider them spiritual practitioners. Just the fact that you have allegiance to a religion and sometimes you go and follow its rituals when it's convenient for you. Like, oh, let's go and celebrate Christmas because afterwards I'm going to eat half of a pig and I'm going to feel guilty of being a glutton and then so on. And then I alleviate it by going to the church. Now I'm saying, ah, it's Christmas, ah. 
at least once a year. And then there is Easter also, where we slaughter lambs. So I don't feel guilty. I again go to the church and say, oh, Lord Jesus Christ. And now I'm clean. It justifies all my gluttony and all my greed. Just because, so some many people use the rituals of their religion just as an excuse for not feeling bad, and they keep it to the minimum. Krishna doesn't talk about religious people. Krishna talks about people who actually move their ass, who people who do effort, effort to become more non-violent, effort to become more truthful, effort to master brahmacharya, effort to become more detached, to have aparigraha, and so on. All those virtues and the rising of the level of consciousness. And so, Krishna is disappointing. He says, there's one person in a thousand. And the yogis of India consider that 4,000 years ago when Krishna lived, the society was much more spiritual than today. So today there are maybe not even one in a thousand. No, what if you live in a what is if one in ten thousand? And you live in a country which is, let's say, of twenty million people. Then it means in that country there are two thousand spiritual seekers. Period. Two thousand. You know, it's a very small crowd. You put them on a stadium and take out a machine gun and shoot them all, suddenly there is no spiritual person left in that country. It's like it's a small crowd. It's a small group. So the question is, therefore, uh, spirituality is a rare thing. And as I said last time, spiritual people can be considered different, a bit abnormal. Like Ramakrishna, he said, I'm interested in Kali, and in my village nobody is interested in Kali except on the 25th of May when there is a festival of Kali. Then everybody comes for two hours, they do Om Namah Kali or Kalikayas or something. Then they go back to their daily life and they do nothing else until next year. And he says, I'm interested in Kali every day, every minute. And they constantly talk about how great their land is, how good their house is, how smart and pretty their kids are. And he said, I don't have a house, I don't have land, I don't have kids, and I'm not interested in either of those. So he said, I'm different. I'm, in my village, I'm a weirdo. I'm an odd person. Unfortunately, this is how many spiritual people feel today. If a thousand years ago in India, you would have been a yogi or in Tibet, normal people would have treated you like they treat the monks here. They would have said, wow, you are one of those one in a thousand of which Krishna is talking. You know what? We respect you. Like we can't do what you do. You know, and we respect you because you made such a hard choice. And here is some rice and bananas for you to eat so that you can just eat and do your headstand and do your meditation because, uh, you know, we are appreciative of you. And if you get some gift from the cosmic consciousness, please come to our village as well and share it with us. You know, you are the one person who might be our connection to the higher things, like at least people respected, supported spirituality. Today, it becomes so difficult that if you are, a spir- if you would be a spiritual person, a la Shankaracharya of India, or a la Rumi of uh, Persia and later Turkey, then people will say, what a loser, what a weirdo, you know, and do you have a retirement plan? Well, that's what people 
are in, if you have a retirement plan, not if you reached God. No? If you reached God, it's like that's some madness in your head. But a retirement plan, you know, that's what is talking, you know. That's what means something. So, what I'm trying to say here is that uh, in a yoga school, the atmosphere is different. If we would be a yoga school of gymnastics, you would find here a lot of fitness fanatics and physical fixation people. But by now, all of you know that although we do physical yoga and quite a bit of it, nevertheless, this school is not focused on the physical part of yoga, but it does yoga as a gymnosophism, as gymnastics for the finding of wisdom. We are in search of wisdom, not in search of gymnastics. And thus, in a school like this, many people who are looking for that, those people who are one in a thousand or one in ten thousand, they usually stop for a while or for a long time in a place like this. And the concentration of crazy people in a place like this is much bigger than outside in the society. And therefore, there is a special atmosphere because in a place like this, there is aspiration. There is more of this Ishvara Pranidhana and people try to do things. And that's why the thing which is logically continuing my idea is to tell you, sure, in this world, people have invented, I I didn't even bother to count them, people have invented, let's say, a hundred methods for accelerating your evolution. Such as Zen Buddhism in Japan, or Taoist martial arts and Taoist meditations in China. I'm not quoting everything which exists on the face of the earth. I'm quoting a few, like a few landmarks. Or Tibetan Buddhism associated or not with Tibetan yoga. Because not all the Tibetan Buddhists do Tibetan yoga. Tibetan yoga is a separate part of that knowledge. So it can be with or without. In India, yoga. In Buddhism, Vipassana, Anapana, the classical methods of the Theravada Buddhism, like here in Thailand or in the South East Asian countries. In the Sufi schools of Afghanistan, Turkey, and other places in the world where Sufism is tolerated and they let them live their lives, because in some countries they kill them, uh, even in Muslim countries, uh, in Sufi, where Sufis are, there are 12 forms of Sufi practice. Some of them practice the zikr, which means they repeat obsessively with hyperventilation the name of Allah. So they go the whole night, Allah, who, Allah, who, Allah, who, and so on. Or they have the dervish dances. In one of the 12 schools, they have the spinning dance, which is the most visually uh, spectacular. But not all the Sufis do that. It's only one school out of 12 that has this dervish dance, this spinning dances, which is a for an exercise for rising Kundalini. So basically they do prayers to Allah while Somebody plays devotional music and your body spins. And that combination gives rise to a rising of Kundalini and it puts you in mystical states in an accelerated way. It's like a yoga. 
It's like a yoga, but it belongs to the Sufis, and the yogis from India did not invent the identically the same thing. The creativity has been different according to different religions. If you go in Christianity, in the Orthodox Eastern Christianity, they invented the famous prayer of the heart. It's a method of prayer, which is still practiced in some monasteries in Greece, in Russia, in Eastern Europe. It's a method of prayer with a very ascetic lifestyle associated to it, which is you use a prayer to Jesus like a mantra and like a pranayama, and it takes you into advanced states of prayer and into states of ecstasy eventually. So wherever we look, I will stop, like I could continue, but I gave you samples from a few clear meridians. Wherever you look, you will see that people have invented methods. Europeans have been hungry for God. Persians have been hungry for God. Indians have been hungry for God. Chinese have been hungry for God. And Japanese have also been hungry for God. Therefore, everybody, because there was no communication in those days, everybody had their lineages, their things, and they had a method. Of course, the method was inspired by the history and the anthropological environment of that country. Like most of Eastern Asia is Buddhist today. And therefore, most of the spirituality which you find in Japan, Korea, China, and others, Tibet, Taiwan, and Southeast Asia, are most of them methods which are one way or another connected to Buddhism. You can say, but couldn't a Christian method... But there were not so many Christians. When Christianity came to Japan in the 16th century, the Japanese started crucifying them and persecuting them. They were not happy about Christianity being brought to Japan. And they didn't agree with it because it contradicted profoundly with this Manipura soul of Japan. This Anahata weird thing coming from the Mediterranean part of Europe, it was simply not fitting, they thought, with Japan. So Christianity has been prohibited in Japan for centuries under punishment of death, like, like it was in the Roman Empire, and people went to death. There were many, many, many Japanese martyrs, Christian martyrs, crucified and tortured for Jesus. So it happened not only in the early days, it happened four centuries ago in Japan. And the list could continue. Um, the point being that, yes, there are different methods. Here in Agama Yoga, you are not part of a religious method, like this is not a Christian monastery or a Buddhist monastery, but the yogis outside of the religions, and being of many religions, there have been yogis who are Buddhist, yogis who are Hindu, yogis who are Jain, yogis who are Muslim, and many others. Uh, there is a lineage of Christian Catholic yogis, like Christian priests, who remained Christian Catholic. They are not excommunicated by the Catholic Church. They are accepted because they don't break the basic theology of the Catholic Church. And they are yogis, like Father Bede Griffith, or... Uh, Le so, Henri Le so, and others, there are ashrams in the south of India, which are like Christian monasteries, but they are a Hindu ashram. And when they pray to Jesus, they say, Om Namah Jesu. Instead of saying, Om Namah Shivaya, they say, Om Namah Jesu. Like they use the Hindu style, but their target is Jesus. The target of their prayer. So, people have invented methods everywhere, and depending on the cradle 
where this has come. Yoga is at the crossroads of many religions, and the yogis were, did not consider themselves a religion. They considered themselves to have this experimental method. And thus, there appeared different forms of yoga, which are equivalent to the religious methods. Like Patanjali says that what you do through the prayer of the heart in Christianity, and what you do by vipassana meditation in Buddhism, you can do by the method of Raja Yoga, which he is teaching in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. Oh, but Yoga Sutra is not belonging to any religion in particular. So you can do it being of any religion or being of no religion. Even there are many rationalists and atheists who have practiced yoga with many successful results in their spiritual transformation. And that's why uh, we establish the idea that some of you, some people, have spiritual aspiration, may be motivated to do something, and ultimately, once you reach to that crossroad, then in front of you there is a choice. Okay, I have been in Agama for two weeks, I heard some crazy lectures from Swami or from some of the teachers, and you know what? One thing dawned upon me. I am a spiritual person. I am one of those one people in a thousand, for sure. This is speaking to me very much. And then, now my question is, will I go into a Buddhist monastery? Will I go in Japan and practice Zen? Will I start Taoist martial arts in Wudang or some place? Well, like, which will be my path? Because I cannot practice 30 different methods simultaneously, be it even for the lack of time in 24 hours per day. So I have to choose. And thus, being in Agama here, you are confronted, you are offered, you are being offered the method of yoga. But there are many yogas. There is the old yoga, the, the first classical, the pre-classical yoga, which is the yoga from Bhagavad Gita. The yoga is outlined by Krishna in Bhagavad Gita. Then there is the classical yoga, which is the yoga of Patanjali, which is again very central in India. Then there is the Vedantic yoga, the Vedanta yoga, which is the yoga which is associated with a form of Hinduism, which is called Vedanta, and which Sri Aurobindo has called it Hindu Marxism, you know, because it's like almost it requires, it's like you can be Marxist and practice Vedanta, you know, and it's, it doesn't require any devotional exercise or any religious exercise in any way. And at least one more, if not more, there is the Shaivistic yoga, the Tantric yoga, such as the best example is the one practiced by the Kashmirians from the, the yogis from Kashmir. And if you really want to dig and split the hair, we can divide it in more trends of yoga. So the, the first thing which you hear when you come in Agama is, we think we are really great because in this school you can learn tantric yoga. And of course, most people when they hear tantric yoga, they think it's about the penis and the vagina thing, and they think it's the hanky-panky thing. But actually, philosophically, Tantra doesn't mean that far, far from that. And the sexual aspects and the symbolism uh, of sex in Tantra is containing about or is em embracing or is covering about 10% of Tantra. 90% of the Tantric traditions of India and Tibet, they don't speak about sex or sexual symbolism. They speak about 
entirely different things. That's why my first, I, I will want to zoom on this in two steps. And I don't know if I manage to zoom on this tonight, but at least a part of it I'll manage to do tonight. I'm trying to zoom on this because I started from your urge for evolution. And I simply said that leads automatically to the fact that you have to choose a method eventually. If you want to pull the finger out of that orifice and actually do something, then you have to choose a method by which you do something. I'm going to do six hours of vipassana every day from now till I reach nirvana. Whatever your choice is. And that's why, of course, now it is my duty, you being in Agama, visiting me here in Agama, that I will tell you what is the tantric yoga, because you have entered in the world of tantric yoga, and we consider it's a very, very special world, very special, and actually we consider it's the best. If for one second I would consider that vipassana is better than tantric yoga, then I would close this down and move a hundred meters down that place. No, it is as simple as that. Like every, every intelligent person would choose what is best for them and for the others. That doesn't mean any disrespect because obviously every person subjectively thinks that this is better than that. I have had friends who quit yoga and became fundamentalistic Christians. And they consider till the end of their lives that Christianity was clearly superior to yoga. That's not my opinion. They tried to brainwash me with it for years in a row. And I said, thank you. I I hear you, but uh, we agree that we disagree on this one. You know, that's the only thing which we can agree upon. That's why every person has their choices. No disrespect is meant. I cannot give you God's judgment that Christianity is better than yoga or that tantric yoga is better than vipassana or the, the best method is the one which clicks with your heart. It's the one which, cl- which simply motivates you. Here, I can only tell you what you are into here in Agama, maybe that produces clarity. As I said last week, my first purpose is to give you some clarity. That's the Dharma which my Guru gave to me to spread this discrimination, this discernment, this clarity, because it's a clear, it's a, for me, it's very visible that people are going aimlessly through this world of spirituality. Many practice a sort of esotourism, which is a word which comes from esoteric and tourism, esotourism, you know, in search of gurus and ashrams and things like this. And they are like butterflies around the flame. They are like insects hypnotized by the fire, spinning around and saying, maybe this, maybe that, maybe, you know. And then there is no clarity. There needs to be, first of all, a clarity, because these things are very, very clear. So my purpose in the coming uh, minutes is to tell you a few things about the spirit of Tantric Yoga, besides its association with sex, which is obvious, and uh, because this itself gives you a feeling of, if you like this kind of life, because if you live the life of a Christian monk or nun, Or if you live the life of a Zen, Buddhist, Japanese, Karate, or Jujutsu, martial arts teacher. Or if you live the life of a Kashmirian Tantric. 
that those lives are very different. The goal is the same, but the environment is very different. For example, in Buddhism, because of the insistence on Ajna Chakra, of Buddha himself and of the Buddhist teachings, alcohol is strictly prohibited. All the fundamentalistic Buddhist teachers, they say you shall not touch alcohol. But in Christianity, because they don't insist on Ajna, but they insist on Anahata, and because natural alcohol coming from wine, not the booze, not the fire water, and not the fermented thing in the beer, but the middle of the way thing which is in the grape wine, because Jesus himself sanctioned and apparently touched it, like drank of it, then automatically wine in very limited amounts is okay. The first glass is from God, the second give it to a friend, and the third comes from the devil. So you should never get to three glasses, you know. Two is better, one is even best, you know. And the glasses in the old days were small, so we're not talking about those glasses, yeah. We're talking about a glass, you know. And therefore, a glass of wine, natural, not with metabisulfites into it, not the one which you buy in bottles, but the one which is freshly pressed and made in the home. Drinking a half of a glass of wine has multiple advantages. So the question is, do I want to live a spiritual life with wine or without wine? Because if I want it with wine, I cannot go to Buddhists. Because in Buddhist monasteries, I will not be able to say, come on, a glass of wine here and there. They'll say, yeah, go to a Christian monastery. There you can have a glass of wine. But it's a different set of rules. And those rules are not interchangeable. That's why it's very important by this small example, it's very important to understand what you want to put yourself into. Like, I want spirituality. But then the question is, I want spirituality with sex or without sex? It's a very legitimate question. No? Maybe for some of you it makes no difference. Maybe some of you are so traumatized sexually and emotionally that actually the first choice would be without sex. That's fine. Like, I cannot say what will be the choice of everybody. But the choice has to be made. It's a conscious choice. And thus, we look a little bit into this, what is the tantric yoga. First of all, I said tantra is not about sex. Name tantra itself, the most often given translation of it, is web or warp. Like the warp on a loom. When you make fabric or carpets, this network of threads, which is the basis of everything, is called Tantra. Tantori means to weave things. And thus, the idea of the word Tantra is that in this universe, everything is connected with invisible threads with everything. Your Manipura Chakra is connected to the sun. And when you do something with Manipura Chakra, you feel something from the sun. And if the sun has solar spots, that can have effects on your Manipura Chakra or on your digestive system or something in your body. Everything is connected. You can't see the connect the thread between your Manipura Chakra and the sun, but there is a virtual thread. And there is a virtual thread which connects everything with everything. And that's why we live in a web of interconnectedness. And the idea of this expressed in Western culture 
is the idea of holism. Holism. It's expressed a little bit by the holographic universe of Talbot and Krishnamurti. And it is even more clearly expressed by the ancient doctrine of holism. That you cannot separate the spirit from the mind, the mind from the emotions, the emotions from the body. Everything is one. We are one. And the human being cannot be divided like uh, I am a cardiologist. I am the doctor for the heart. What's happening to your liver? I don't give a shit. But the liver is related, although it's not part of the cardiovascular system, or the bone system, just to take something even more, or the skin. The, you know, I, we don't care. Go to the dermatologist. You come to me if you have heart problems. But what if the heart problems are connected with skin problems, and skin problems are connected with the heart problems? And they are both of them connected with emotions and mental problems. All is a whole, and everything has to be treated holistically. That's Tantra. Tantra is the idea of holism that you should not look at a part. You should look at everything. That's why Tantra contains many, many, many things. It has become very encyclopedic, and it's based on texts which are called the Tantras. That's why it's called the Tantric tradition, the tradition of the Tantras. Classically, there are mentioned 64 Tantras, 64 classical Tantric texts. These things, you can read them on Wikipedia or other online places of scholarship. I'm just mentioning them to you because the Tantric tradition is not something which Agama has invented. It's not something which I invented or my gurus have invented. It's something which is very, very old and venerable in the Indian Tibetan and other places, spirituality. And uh, the main streaks of Tantra which survive today are the Hindu and Tibetan. There is a Hindu Tantra and there is a Tibetan Tantra. Those, that's why people know mostly about Tantra in those places. But again, it existed in other places. Like Tantric images have been unearthed in the Indus Valley in Mohenjo-Daro, which today is in Pakistan. But 5,000 years ago, Pakistan was not a Muslim country because there was not a Muslim religion. And therefore, there was Tantra in today's Pakistan. It doesn't mean it survives, but I mean Tantra has been in a bigger area. Today, it survives as Hindu and Tibetan Tantra. And the Tibetan Tantra is, of course, a Buddhist Tantra because the Tibetan dominant religion is of Buddhist type. So there is a Hindu Tantra, a Buddhist Tantra, which say the same thing, but they just adapted the language so that they convene to the, with the religious terminology of their time. And remember that therefore the Tantric Yoga is something which is different than the classical yoga, than the Bhagavad Gita, than the Vedantic Yoga. That's why people are surprised. You know, the people say, you do yoga? You must submit to Patanjali. If you do Patanjala's Raja Yoga, if you do Tantric Yoga, Patanjali has no authority in Tantric Yoga. Ah, that Patanjali was a great sage of India and he said many important things which are universally valid. And when we do lectures in the first level, we quote to you the eight levels of yoga according to Patanjali and this and that. That's because those are beyond one style or another. They are universal. But otherwise, one thing which people are shocked is uh, in uh, Tantric Yoga, you don't do this, you don't do that, because I heard from a guru from India that you have to do this or that. No. 
because it's different. For example, let me give you the first which comes to my mind. Somehow, some ultra-ascetic people from India, they imported in yoga some elements from the Jain religion. In the Jain religion, because they go into some extreme forms of asceticism, Jainism is way more puritanic than Buddhism. For example, the common trend in Jainism is that when elderly people are 70, 80 years old, if they feel that they cannot stand up and go to the toilet, and if they cannot at least take their bowl and eat, like in the moment when people feel really, really old, and that now they would be dependent on somebody's help, then Jain people, even nowadays, they stop eating. They go on hunger strike. And after a hundred days of not eating, they die. That's happening in the giant religion and it's considered okay. It's a sort of a suicide. Like in the moment when I can't live my life properly, then it's okay to drop this body and to go in the next reincarnation. Does God consider that suicide or not? I can tell you my opinion, but again, that doesn't mean that you have to believe me. You can do your own research about it. You know, in that religion, it's considered okay. But hey, in the samurai religion, of the, it was considered that if your master tells you die, you go and die in Japan. So harakiri was also considered a religious death. Like, okay, Buddha was okay if you did harakiri at the request of your feudal master, of your lord. And thus... Many religions have many provocative things, which, oh, can it go as far as that, you know? Like the Prophet Muhammad had, whatever, 39 wives or something. And one of them, if I remember correctly, was 11 years old or 15 years old or something, you know? Are we going to condemn it? Then there have been millions and gazillions of Muslim families in which there was a man with four wives. Is it wrong? I, who has the moral authority to say, nah, flush them all down the toilet. They are all a bunch of idiots. It can't be right. But those people were going to the mosque every Friday. They were praying to God. They thought they lived a religious life. So it's not so easy to pass judgment on these things. Well, in yoga, as I was saying, some people took from Jainism a thing about food. Because garlic and onion are sexual. They give you a little bit of horniness. And the giant monks, which are some of the most extreme monks in the world, who go on all four not to squash ants on the floor, they didn't want to be horny. So they cut off their diet, onion and garlic. Which onion and garlic otherwise in India are praised all the way to heaven. If you read any Ayurvedic book, they tell you how amazing onion and garlic are and good for your health and garlic is the one of the greatest antibacterial and antivirus like the natural antibiotic of which exists in the world so you should eat garlic just to for your immune system you know when you feel that you might get a sore throat eat 10 cloves of garlic just like this you know because it's a natural you know so in no in ayurveda and in the indian culture there's nothing wrong with onion and garlic and then suddenly when you go through ashrams in Rishikesh or some place, you find all sorts of yogis who say, no, 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 you should not touch onion and garlic. And if you ask them, please show me a scripture where it says, show me one of the shah, where is this coming from? It's not coming from anywhere, it comes from the giant religion. 
in the 19th century, somebody cross-fertilized and brought it in because they said, the yogis, especially the Vedantic yogis or the Patanjali yogis, they want to be celibate. And from the Jainists, they had a great idea. Don't take onion and garlic. So we applied. In our ashram, nobody eats onion and garlic. That, you cannot make it compulsory. Of course, you can make in your house. In your house, you can make compulsory anything you want. Because it's your house, it's your rules. But, again, you cannot say that that's what yoga says. Because yoga never said that in any fundamental text. And thus, tantric yoga is something else. In tantric yoga, people are doing hatha yoga, and some of them are very vital physically. Like, they are like athletic people. In tantric yoga, some people are active sexually, and they need a good muladhara and a good svadhisthana to have sexual energy to perform in bed, to be good when they do sex. And then they want to eat a lot of onion and garlic because it's very healthy and very vital for their body. And therefore, when you come to a tantric yoga, you say, oh, I went to those people, they don't even know that you shouldn't eat onion and garlic. This is a misunderstanding. In a tantric yoga streak, you cannot apply rules from the Jain religion and rules which may have been borrowed by Vedantic yogis or others because they found them convenient. That's why I'm calling your attention that tantric yoga is something else. And this means different methods, different philosophy, different lifestyle. No, It's our spiritual colleagues from the Buddhist temple 200 meters from here if they go 100% by the rules, they have the rule that you cannot take any solid food after 12 o'clock at noon. At noon is the last moment when you can eat solid food. After 12 o'clock, until you go to bed, if you go to bed at 10 o'clock in the night or whatever, or 11, you have to take only liquids. How many li liquids? Because you'll go to 7-Eleven and buy yourself a Pepsi-Cola or God knows what they drink, you know? The how many of those will you take? You know, it's like it gets you sick after you drink three, so three sweet sodas, then you are fed up with sodas as well. So there's a smartness in it, because if you don't eat solid food, then the liquid stuff cannot be too much of it. No? And thus, I'm saying there are different rules. No? Here, you can say that some people say, let's make love, and then at 11 o'clock when we finish making love, let's have a little dinner. Those guys would twirl in their grave. You know, like, are you eating at 11 o'clock after you had two hours of sex? Yeah, tantric yoga. It's a different school. It's a different game. It's a different method that is being used. That's why uh, you have to be aware of this. And ultimately, I'm going to open this topic because it all comes from the metaphysical angle and it's about the good old Shiva and Shakti, or as in classical yoga, Purusha and Prakriti. You, I said this in several lectures, so some of you may have heard it before. I can't say it enough. And I can't say it enough because the difference is, as I said, the lifestyle can become radically different because of another philosophical way of trying to solve the big conundrum, the big dilemma of life, which Buddha saw correctly, but then that problem can be solved in many, many other ways. And thus, the difference, this is the main thing of Tantric Yoga, is the following. I, it seems to be a small philosophical difference. I remember that in his uh, well-known books, the, Travel, the Gulliver's Travels, the British writer 
Jonathan Swift, he was making fun of British politics. He was in, by writing uh, Gulliver's Travels, he made also some social satire about the English uh, society of his 17th century. And he, uh, made fun that in the state of Lilliput, where the little people were living, where Gulliver goes to the country of Lilliput, there they had two parties, two political parties. And it was a, a parable of the two political parties existing in England and in those days. And those two political parties, the biggest difference between them is that the king of Lilliput, or the little, the prince of Lilliput, when he was young, they gave him to eat boiled eggs, and as he broke the boiled eggs, uh, he cut himself in the shelf of the egg, and he bled, and oh, this was a big tragedy for the little prince. And then the whole country was shaken by the fact that, oh my God, the little prince has cut his finger while eating a boiled egg. And then they proclaimed it was, he cut his little finger because he opened the egg at the wrong end. Because as you know, eggs have a broad end and a narrow end. They are not completely symmetrical. So they said, uh, see, the prince and all the country, consequently, they should never open an egg at the narrow end. Boiled eggs always have to be opened at the broad end of the egg. And that's, you know, and it's like one party said that you should open eggs at the broad end, and the other party said that you should open the eggs at the narrow end. By this, Jonathan Swift wanted to say what David Icke says when he says you go in America and it seems like there is a big difference between Republicans and Democrats. But actually they eat in the same clubs, they are parts of the same Freemasonic lodges, they are all of them politically correct in the same way, and ultimately America is a one-party state. No, it's apparently there are two parties to keep the people busy, but the main tenets of American politics are the same since a hundred years, so there is nobody who really goes different, you know, like, hey, we are a part of America or of England. Or... So he was making fun of these uh, games of politics. No, it's the same in the Tantric Yoga. If I'm telling you that some people look upon Shiva and Shakti this way and the others do it that way, you're going to say, come on, man, this is like in Jonathan Swift, you know? It's like two, you make two political parties, the Tantrics and the non-Tantrics. However, the difference metaphysically being so small, the difference which results in the lifestyle of the people who live by those rules is completely big. It's a huge difference. And that's why here, in this case, we are not like in Lilliputan politics. We are in a metaphysical choice which can make your life as different as black and white. It's a very big difference in the practice. And that's why here what the difference is, I'll see how far I can go tonight. Then on next week, I'll continue with it till the end of this, telling you about the methods which are being used. And then I'll come down to Agama Yoga, like from all this gigantic establishment of Tantric Yoga, what do we do here in Agama? In this way, I hope that in a series of two, three lectures, I will give you clarity about your evolution and the path you want to choose. And perhaps, at least intellectually, you will know if what we do in Agama is something which is of your interest or it's completely, completely alien to your interest, to your passion, to your focus. So, the, this difference with Purusha and Prakriti, 
which I often said I'm doing, trying to keep it as brief as possible. It starts from the fact that all the philosophies of this world divide the nature of reality in two. There is a reality which we can call reality with a capital R, but then when we look at it, what is reality made of? Everybody in the beginning first finds a division in two. There are two main blocks of reality, which are called in Sanskrit, Prakriti and Purusha. In direct translation, that would mean Prakriti, nature, or matter, mother nature, matter, the universe, (coughs) and Purusha, spirit, the forbidden word. So, everybody agrees to that, with the exception of the ultra-materialists, the Marxists and others, who claim and say, well, spirit is not really a category, it doesn't exist. It's a figment of imagination. So there exists only matter. Because spirit somehow cannot be measured, touched, and demonstrated by scientific methods, and therefore probably doesn't exist at all. That's the major difference there. But otherwise, everybody says the universe is made of spirit and matter. Spirit and matter, Purusha and Prakriti, are existent in all the traditions. For example, in Vedanta, I mentioned Vedanta, which is a very big streak of spirituality. In India, spirit is called Brahman, not Brahma. Brahman, the absolute consciousness, and nature is called Maya or illusion, a dream. In Buddhism, spirit is called Nirvana, and matter or nature is called Samsara. You are in Samsara, and you try to reach Nirvana, to escape to Nirvana. This polarity exists everywhere. Even in the Gnostic Christianity, the universe is made of the phenomenal world, the world of phenomena, and the nominal world coming from the Greek nous, in which you have nous and phenomena, the externalization of it. So nous will mean spirit, the world of spirit, and the world of the externalization of spirit, which is the phenomenal world. The Taoists, they call it the non-manifestation and the manifestation. In Buddhism, sometimes instead of nirvana and samsara, it's called the void and the fullness. This polarity, I could talk until tomorrow about it, because it's the essence of the reality. This polarity has been called in so many names. In so many ways, in every tradition, Taoists, Buddhists, Hindus, you name it, even in Christianity and in the religions of the book, we have clearly the distinction between spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the breath of God, and manifestation, creation, the world. No? So it's world and spirit, matter and spirit, nature and spirit, if you want. So... If everybody thinks about the reality as being matter and spirit, then where is the catch? The catch is that in some forms of spirituality, they talk about the relationship between the matter and spirit. And unless you have studied in a tantric school in a previous life, or in this life before you came to Agama, then most probably, if that's not so, then most probably your spirit is brainwashed with a subconscious dominant idea which says that matter and spirit are opposites. 
if you are spiritual, then you can't be too materialistic. And if you are very materialistic, then definitely you can't be a spiritual person. It's like a seesaw. Spirit, matter. When spirit goes up, matter goes down. Like They are like water and oil. They don't mix. They don't like each other. This attitude will make that those people caught in samsara or in maya or in matter are the prisoners of the devil and the people who search for spirit, nirvana, brahman, they caught God by the ankle of his foot or of his leg and they go to the kingdom of heaven. It's a clear duality like God and the devil, light and darkness. Samsara is darkness and nirvana is light. It's a clear, it's a black and white choice. Every spirituality which is non-tantric, which means non-holistic in character, thinks exactly like that. That's why in every religion and spirituality and form of yoga, which is non-tantric, you cannot bring spirit and matter together. You shouldn't even try, because they are sworn enemies. And if you want to be more spiritual, then you do like the Christian monks. You sell everything and give it to the poor, and then you go in a monastery where you take a vow of obedience, poverty, and chastity. You live at the mercy of the institution, of the monastery. You own nothing. You are poor, and you are supposed to live in spirit. Of course, there are many, many unsuccessful monks and nuns who are cheating and living a false Christian religious life, and actually they are attached, they are greedy, they are materialistic, but that was not what was in the books. When they joined the ranks, they the original idea was now you let go of matter and you go into spirit. Only that, unfortunately, that's easier said than done, and for many people it doesn't work that easy, and then they flop. But it's not because the principle is not good. The principle is there, not everybody succeeds. Like 100 people start a university and 50 finish it. Because 50 have dropped along the way. Doesn't mean that the university does not exist or it's not good. So, Tantric Yoga changes that radically. Because Tantric Yoga simply says you haven't looked carefully. Even Patanjali says, when you reach enlightenment, it's like you reach pure spirit. But Prakriti, the mother nature, will not disappear for the other people around you. It's like the Leibniz idea of a monad, that your spirit is a perfect sphere, and you are in your own bubble. And you get enlightened, that's it. And for you, everything is gone. The other people are still in Maya, and they are struggling for their enlightenment. But you have managed to save yourself. You are out of this ocean of samsara. Tantra says it's absurd, isn't it? Like, if, you, if it cannot be here and now, then where will it be? Enlightenment has to be here and now. Where, where do you hope you are going to go? This kingdom of heaven where it is? That's why a great tantric yogi of India called Sri Aurobindo, he said, I'm not trying to go to any kingdom of heaven. I'm trying to bring the kingdom of heaven down here. Because it's everywhere. 
To make the long story short, and enough for tonight, I'll just go on for five minutes and then uh, give you a break to think about this. I'll take it from there next week where I will conclude this cycle of uh, satsangs. To make it clear, the tantric spirituality says you did not look carefully. Because matter is nothing else but a other condition of the spirit is like the visible part of an iceberg and the invisible part of an iceberg. But it's still the same iceberg. And therefore, the fact that you see matter, but you don't see spirit, and then you see the part which we see is inferior, and the part which we don't see, aha, that's the great thing. But eventually, energy cannot disappear. It never disappears. The laws of physics tell us that matter and energy only transform endlessly from one form to another form. But there is a conservation of the mass and a conservation of the energy law in which everything is constantly the same. And therefore the tantric say the spirit and the matter are like an apple. And when you cut it in two, you've got the spirit half and the matter half. Guess what? They are both part of the same apple. They are both God. And thus, the, instead of calling them spirit and matter, Purusha and Prakriti, they call them Shiva and Shakti. Which gives us a completely different idea because spirit and matter, they are like fighting with each other. But Shiva and Shakti are not fighting with each other. Shiva and Shakti love each other, dance with each other, they are together. They make love to each other. And therefore, spirit and matter in the tantric tradition, that's very important. You think it's like the egg of the Lilliputans. But that changes everything. Because if you look upon it like this, then spirit, Shiva, is sacred. And matter, Shakti, is also sacred. And therefore, you can find the truth via both of them. You can drop matter and look into spirit, and there it is. Or you can look into matter, and there it is. It is not a coincidence that in the beginning of the 20th century, when the modern science has reached this level of Ajna Chakra to look into matter, they reached at quantum mechanics, they discovered quantum mechanics, and then the whole thing fell apart. Because they discovered that once you get to the bottom of matter, you reach spirit. Not only that matter, you cannot say if it's energy or substance. Like an electron is describable sometimes as a particle, like a ball, like a tiny little ball, which like a bullet, and sometimes like a wave. It's also an electromagnetic wave. So what's an electron? An electromagnetic wave or a ball? an object, a bullet, both and none. You cannot say about an electron where it is. If you say it's here, it's wrong. If you say it's not here, it's also wrong. If you say it's you know, moving, it's wrong. If you say it's staying, it's also wrong. Whatever you say about elementary particles has been demonstrated to be imprecise. And the ultimate, the last the last drop was 
that when they made experiments with elementary particles from the standpoint of quantum mechanics, they discovered that the same experiment worked in two different ways, completely different ways, if a scientist was watching the experiment or not. Which is completely insane. Because what we think that it's just electrons and matter reacts to us. If I look at it, it reacts in a different way. You cannot see it on this because it has too many electrons and atoms and it's not at the level of the quanta. But if I would zoom at the level of the quanta, that the quantic level, this even this, knows that I look at it. It reacts to me acknowledging it. Just the fact that I acknowledge it produces a quantic difference. Today, after a hundred years, scientists still cannot explain or they don't know what to make out of this. Because this is what took Albert Einstein and Saint-Georgi and uh, Dirac and Schrödinger and Heisenberg and the, like them. They took them to a religion. These people became spiritual from being physicists. The only one of these big physicists who didn't go into it was somehow Niels Bohr. Niels Bohr stuck to his guns. He simply said, no, no, I'm a scientist. Scientists don't do this. And he was stubbornly not wanting to evaluate the consequences. But all the others, they said, my God, you know, it's like we have been using microscopes and we discovered God at the end of the microscopes. Like when you split the matter and split the matter and see what it is, no, we say the universe comes out of a big bang or something, you know. But every particle in this universe, every electron, and there is a gazillion or of gazillions of gazillions of them, is has an energy which is measurable in a unit which is called electron volts. And this defines the quantum levels of the elementary particles. No? When you sum up the energy of every single elementary particle in this universe, it's an amount which is insane. You can write it as a number, but it's a number which is so big that it doesn't even make sense how big it is. And then the question is, who created that energy? What, where does that energy come from? Like, we play with this, that in the beginning there was nothing. And You're kidding. In the beginning there was an absolutely horrendously huge energy which still exists in every atom and in every electron of this world, dissipated, each one of them carries a few electron volts of that energy. Where does that energy come from if there is a beginning? Even the mind can't even catch you. If you try to think about this, you it collapses. That's why Albert Einstein and some other people like him, they invented a religion of the quantum mechanics, which is called the Princeton, Princeton University in the United States. The Princeton noses, like the Christian noses, like the Gnostic church. Christian noses. Just Google it and you will see uh, there is only one major book written about it, but one of those scientists wrote the main tenets of it. It's written for people with IQ over 150. No, like when you read it, it's like, whoo, you know, it's like these guys could really think about things, you know. It's like it's written at a level which involves knowledge of science, mathematics, philosophy, and so on. Huge. 
But what I'm trying to say is, this is exactly a confirmation of the Tantric Yoga. That if you look in the matter, you find spirit. Like the Taoist said, if you look in the middle of yin, there is a spot of yang. If you look in the middle of yang, there is a spot of yin. A woman is yin, but her menstrual blood is yang. A man is yang, but his sperm is yin. The other way around. So there are laws of this, which simply says, in matter, there is spirit. This is what shamanism and animism was using all the time. That everything is alive. Trees are alive. Rocks are alive. Nature is alive. There is spirit everywhere. And in that way you can do magic, shamanism, animism. Speak with the nature. Your bicycle, your motorbike, your car, your computer and your smartphone are alive. They are a being. They are a little person with whom you interact. And for example, the great Gurdjieff said that because we use automobiles, 400 people every year die in traffic accidents. The people who die in traffic accidents, said Gurdjieff, are blood sacrifices to the demons of the automobiles. The automobiles are demons, demonic entities. And we have an unwritten blood pact with them. You come in our lives and make our lives easier, and we give you a person in 10,000 to die because of the service which you give to us. That, if you would have been asked to sign that deal... You would have not signed it. And we say, no, 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 let me think better about this. I don't know I want to go into this, you know. But you have never been asked to sign that deal. It's an unwritten deal which happens. You use airplanes, from time to time an airplane falls out of the sky. You use computers, from time to time people get dependent on computers and addicted to computers and they get neurotic because they are possessed by the software demons which are in the computers. Shamanism has said this always, but it sounds too silly. It sounds too crazy. But the funny thing is that quantum mechanics kind of rediscovered the same thing, and now they are sitting and biting their nails, because it's like, so what do we do with this? That elementary particles are aware that you look at them or you don't look at them. How can an electron feel that you look at it or not and change its behavior, remember? It works one way, one way, in one way, and it works another way if you don't look at it. That makes no sense. We have absolutely no explanation of it. That's what Tantra says. Tantra says Shakti is God. And Shiva is also God. And actually God is Shiva plus Shakti. God is Shiva Shakti. And... This God, which was one, first of all becomes two. After one, there comes two. And after two, there comes three. And after three, there comes four. It's a very natural series of numbers. First, it's one. And one becomes two. Those two are the yin and the yang. The shakti and the shiva. The prakriti and the purusha. The nature and the spirit. And the difference which results, and I'll stop here, is this fundamental thing, that in the tantric mentality, nature is not bad. And you don't have to run from the nature. 
Remember, even in Christianity, classical Buddhism, classical Hinduism, and all the others, nature is your enemy. That's why people in those spiritualities, they do things against the nature. Like when you are sleepy, you don't sleep, you stand up. When you are hungry, you fast. Like your body is an animal and you want to tease and punish that animal as much as possible. You cannot say, ah, it just came naturally to me. Yeah, it came naturally to me that I got horny and I had an erection. And what do you do if you are a Christian monk? You hit it, you know? You just say, you don't have the right to go up. Down, down, you beast, you know? No? Like, why? It's just natural for a man to get horny and to have an erection in the proper conditions, you know? No, no. If you go natural, you are an animal and you have no spirit. If you want to earn spirit, you have to turn against your flesh. You have to turn against your instincts. You have to turn against the needs of matter. That's why people always admire when a man or a woman in spirituality is not eating, is not sleeping, is not having sex, is not accumulating money, is not interested in this, is not, then people say how holy they are. This is the heritage which we all got in the subconscious mind from the non-tantric spirituality. Because the non-tantric spirituality ceaselessly preaches the fact that spirit and matter are at war with each other. They are opposite. They cannot coexist. And the tantric tradition says you are blind. They coexist very well. They love each other. They are Shiva and Shakti. They are eternal partners. They are the mother and the father of this universe. They are the yang and the yin. And without neither of them, the universe can even exist. And in the tantric tradition of Kashmir, they say Shiva is Shakti and Shakti is Shiva. How? Like a coin. You have a coin and on the coin you have the heads and the tails. The heads is Shiva, the tails is Shakti. But it's the same coin. Can you ever separate them? You cannot separate them. Even if you try to be smart and tell me, oh, we can cut the coin like this. When you cut the coin like this, you'll get two thinner coins, each one of them having a head and a tail. You still cannot get rid of that. A coin always has two faces. The coin is God, who is one, and the two faces of the coin are Shiva and Shakti. And they are inseparable. They are equal. They are 50-50. Both of them are sacred and both of them are divine. And that upsets everything. That changes everything. Because if I'm telling you that your body is divine, that your sexual energy could be turned divine, that food and sunsets and matter and life is divine... But, of course, most people don't see it and they live in misery and ignorance and they are violent and greedy and so on. But if they would stop and say, wait, 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 wait. I want to look at life in a different way. I want to understand. I want to see. Then suddenly there will be a total change of perspective. This is what Tantric Yoga is. Tantric Yoga comes from this metaphysics. It's the consequence of this metaphysics. Just to give you a thing to think about. The other forms of yoga 
despise the body. For example, in India, some tantric yogis called Matsyendra and Goraksha, they invented Hatha Yoga and Kundalini Yoga in the 6th century. And then this yoga spread because everybody saw yogis doing their Janushirshasana and their Shirshasana and their this. And people said, oh, that's, that looks really cool. Let's, let's have some of that. And they learned Hatha Yoga, but they didn't change their philosophy. And in this way, we got the absurd situation where in India, people who are Bhagavad Gita yogis, classical yogis, Patanjali yogis, or Vedantic yogis, they try to do Hatha Yoga. And Hatha Yoga simply doesn't fit at all in what they do. And then they modified the sense of Hatha Yoga. I remember a Christian preacher in, uh, in Denmark who wanted to put down Hinduism and yoga. He was rabidly against all this stuff. And he had discovered some texts about yoga written by Vedantic people. And it was wonderful to read those texts to see exactly the difference in those people who wrote about Hatha Yoga. Guess what was their meaning of Hatha Yoga? Which... I met many people in India who lived with this idea, by the way. Now, no, but this guy was quoting texts written 50 years ago or more. According to the texts he quoted, Hatha Yoga was supposed to be, it's not, but it was supposed to be a method of mortification. Mortification means like when you punish yourself. Like Saint Teresa of Avila, when she got horny, she was beating herself with a whip to bleed and so on, because she was sexually horny and she wanted to punish her sinful body because it dared to get horny and her pussy was daring to get wet and full of desire. And then you beat her. That's called mortification, which means you kill your desires, you kill your flesh. Morty comes, mort, mort comes from death. So it's a killing yourself. It's mortification. Imagine that some yogis invented Hatha Yoga to awaken Kundalini and to bring you to life. And some people are so twisted that they twisted it and they said, no, no, Hatha Yoga is a method to punish your body. Like your body is hurting, right? Ayya, the bastard, let it hurt, you know? <laughs> let it hurt, punish it. And until your consciousness will go out of the body, you'll be, you'll have so much pain in your body that you'll try to escape and then you'll go in a non-body place. You really have to be sick to think in this way. But those are the people who want yoga without the body. Yoga without matter. The purpose of that yoga is to escape from this world quickly, 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 quickly and go somewhere in the supposed kingdom of heaven, somewhere where things are spiritual and perfect. The tantrics, they want this. The tantrics, they want it here and now. The tantrics, they want it concretely, not somewhere. Here, now, concretely, with the body. Matter, there is nothing wrong that we are in matter. Ah, the problem, and I keep on extending this, although I promised I'm finishing it, but I'm getting carried on by it. The problem is that people who live in the matter, they don't pay attention to the rules of the game. And then my body says, uh, uh, he pissed me off. And this produces adrenaline. And now I want to hit him in the face. I get grudgy. I get revengeful. I get to be an asshole because I am an animal 
who listens to the instincts, to the primary instincts of his body. So, of course, if I live in the matter and I don't pay attention, then I'm just an animal. But if I live in the matter and I start paying attention to my chakras, to my energies, you know, I'm getting pissed off at somebody. And then I'm saying, look at my Manipura, you know. My Manipura is going really crazy. Do I want to be on Manipura? No. I want to go in Ajna or in Sahasrara. So wait a little bit, Oscar. And then it's like, yeah, sure, you pissed me off. You know, the world is full of salt and pepper and all sorts of other spices. You know, like, I, you don't even matter. You know, I'm, I transcended it. I don't need to answer back. I'm still in matter, but I am at another level of the matter because I can juggle with matter. I can choose my frequency and this. I'm still in matter. I didn't run anywhere, but I choose from which level I stand and how I deal with it. It's just an example to show you that uh, Tantric Yoga simply says you have to search for the truth in spirit and in matter. Buddhists say that nirvana is cool and you should go for it, and samsara is a boogeyman and you should run from it. Tantrics say it's just a joke. There's nothing wrong with samsara. The only wrong thing is if you forget that you are in samsara, and then you live like an animal, unconsciously. Otherwise, there's nothing wrong, because samsara is shakti, and that's the consort of Shiva. It's the mother of the universe. It's the great goddess. And Shakti does not want to punish you in any way. Shakti, if you invoke Shakti, she is like a mother to you. And you say, Mother, bless me, help me, guide me through this labyrinth of the world. Then your life takes a completely different sense. And that's Tantric Yoga. Tantric Yoga is a spirituality and a form of yoga in which you go for spirit and matter equally because both of them are just the two wings of God, the two facets of God. More about it next Thursday when I will tell you what that means in terms of methods, like why the tantrics, for example, are interested in architecture, in music, in dance, and other such things which the others are not. And thus, we are going to talk about that. And then finally, also next time we'll reach to that, I'll describe to you which of those things are being done in Agama Yoga. So what can you hope to discover practically here? Enough of this, enough for tonight. Thank you for your patience of hearing me expanding and expanding on things. Next week I will conclude this series and uh, this uh, making of clarity, bringing of clarity. Enough for tonight.